sorry, I need to press record. Okay, welcome guys. Week two, today we're finishing off Genesis, right? So if you think about it, this is going to be like the third, we're going to do three sessions in Genesis. Because as you can see, it's a huge book and almost every chapter has something, you know, significant. So unfortunately, obviously, we can't go into every single thing, every single detail, but we're going to try and just focus on as much of the big events, highlights, important themes for us going forward. And yeah, so I don't know if you guys remember where we left off yes, uh, last week. We were in chapter 11 and we just briefly looked at the Tower of Babel, right? And humanity trying to make a name for themselves before being scattered by God and sent out into the rest of the world right that's where we were last week so just a quick summary of that uh just so i can make a point right there was the tower of babel that mankind was building and they were building what's known as a ziggurat right that's the kind of structure they were building it's like think of it as a cake so like you know a cake you have a base layer and you build a layer on top of that and you build a layer on top of that it gets narrower and narrower that's kind of the structure that they were building right and they're telling themselves that they're going to build it all the way up to the heavens, right? They say that, um, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So their view is let's build uh, a tower up to heaven. And I don't think they were naive to think that they, they would get to where God lives, you know? Um, as a child, I don't know about you guys, but I always used to think there was like a stairway to heaven, like there was literally a staircase. And as it got closer to the top, it got brighter for some reason. Um, but I don't think that's what they were thinking. I think that that statement, well, they are trying to say that we can reach God in our greatness, right? The motivation there is to make a name for themselves. And last week we discussed that that's how religion tends to be, right? And even Christians can fall into that trap of let's make a name for ourselves. It's all about the externals. Look at how good we are. Um, they make a show about what they do, what they don't do, uh, how many times they go to church, what they wear. And Genesis 11, right, is in contrast to chapter 12, where we start this week. We get to chapter 12 and we introduce to a man called Abram, right, for now. Later his name is changed to Abraham. And I'm sure you all refer to him as Abraham. No one says Abram. Um, so if we go to chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So from that passage, who is it that will make Abraham's name great? It's God, right? The Lord will do it. It's really amazing. And you can see the contrast, right? Uh, it's the same contrast between religion and true Christianity. So God is the one who comes down to us and lifts us up, right? He has done that for us in the person of Christ. We no longer have to live up to and meet God's standard. Uh, we have the righteousness of Christ, right? Religion is, I will lift myself up. I will make a name for myself. I will be good enough to get into heaven, right? It's an easy trap for us Christians to fall into, even if, even if we know the truth of the gospel. You know, sometimes you can uh, fall into a works-based way of trying to live up to God's standards. So I think it's significant for us that the Lord says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, right? So why is Abraham blessed? It's not just, you know, because for the sake of it, right? The reason for God's blessing isn't so 
Abraham will be great for greatness sake. He's blessed to be a blessing to others. And that is the way of salvation. Uh, we are not, we are conduits, right? God blesses us with talent, with money, with skills, with resources, um, so that you can bless others, right? We are not an end. It doesn't end with us. We are, uh, I like that there's, there's been this analogy used, so you know of the River Jordan and the Dead Sea. So the River Jordan is a river, you know, it's constantly, the water's constantly flowing in and out of it, right? And there's fish, there's all kinds of things living in there, and people can use that river. And then there's a Dead Sea, right? So the River Jordan actually connects to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is where it ends up. And the Dead Sea is called death because it's just like a concentration of all that water. And it's so concentrated with salt that nothing can live in it. It's dead, you know? So we should be like the River Jordan, you know, constantly coming in, constantly giving out, instead of the Dead Sea where we just keep receiving and hoarding and... You know, there's no life, basically. So, um, through Abraham, right, the end of verse 3 says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And remember from the previous lesson we saw in Genesis 3.15, there will be the seed of the woman to put things right between us and God. So, we are promised that there will be a serpent crusher, and it's the very first gospel message. So, imagine you're reading the Bible for the first time, you're like, okay, God has promised this. So you're kind of on the lookout for a serpent crusher. You're on the lookout for like a righteous man who will put things right between us and God. And, and you get to Abraham and you're like, okay, this might be the guy because he seems like a righteous man. You know, he's described as faithful. And God says through him, all the nations will be blessed. Um, and now we know from that text that the serpent crusher will come directly from Abraham's family, right? Um, so we introduce to Abraham and the Lord says, I want you to leave your home in Ur of the Chaldeans. And this is a society very similar to that of Egypt. It's a very pagan civilization. Uh, it's also like advanced for its time, right? Whereas Egypt, they have all these myths and these gods. They worship the stars. They're into astrology, you know? So like your horoscopes and all that stuff. Those were those people, but back then... So the Lord tells Abraham to go, and Abraham obeys. So if you go to verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So what do you guys make of that? Is it a noble thing? Is it a great thing that Abraham is asking of his wife? It's trash, right? It's trash. Men are trash. Um, it's actually disgusting, right? It's terrible. It's basically saying, let those guys take you so that I'm okay, right? I'm okay with other men sleeping with you. Uh, taking you as their wife as long as I'm safe, as long as I'm, I'm able to live and they can let me go. So, so much for being a godly husband, a godly man. Um, it's selfish and evil on Abraham's part, right? It's a terrible thing that he has done. And yet, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, it lists the heroes of the faith, right? It says, by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith, so-and-so did that, right? It lists all the great men and women of the faith, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs. 
So these are the heroes of the faith. But if you just read Hebrews, you think, yo, these guys were amazing. You know, David was amazing. I think we still have that picture of them. Like, oh, I want to be like David. I want to be like Abraham. I want to be faithful. Right? So if you just read that, you think that Abraham never sinned. You know, he was like completely righteous. He was completely um, devoted. And his walk with the Lord was upright. And yet, Scripture never whitewashes the lives of these men. Right? Scripture's never like... Okay, David might have done this. It shows us explicitly what they were like. We see Abraham doing this. We see David um, doing evil, you know, committing murder and adultery. So scripture shows these men for the fallen human beings that they are. And it's important for us to see this because it's encouraging for us, right? Because we know ourselves. You and I know how messed up and fallen we are in our daily lives, right? I'm not this hero of the faith. Right? So it's, enc- it's encouraging because you look at yourself and you know that you're a sinner and yet God uses weak men and women like us, right? like Abraham, like David. Right? They are great not because of what they did but because of the faith that they had in God. So it's crazy because Abraham does the same thing again in Genesis 20. Right? So this is not the first time he will say, wife, sacrifice your life for me. Right? It's... it's crazy and then even his son does it after that so Abraham is his son and his son does the very same thing and children tend to pick up on the sins of their parents right actually kind of scary it's kind of crazy Um, they tend to follow the same tendencies as their parents Um, verse 17 but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai Abraham's wife so Pharaoh called Abraham and said what is this you have done to me why did you not tell me that she was your wife Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. So Pharaoh does exactly what Abraham feared he would do, right? Sees Sarai, Sarah, I'll just say Sarah, you know I'm talking about. (laughs) Sees Sarah and he's like, yo, beautiful, I want this woman as my wife. He's like, yeah, it's my sister, take her, right? And the phrase suggests that Pharaoh took her and slept with her, right? Then the Lord judges Pharaoh and his household, and Abraham is kicked out of Egypt, but he leaves a very wealthy man, right? He's given uh, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, servants, camels, all of these things, right? And it's kind of ironic that Abraham, right, in coming up with this plan, didn't trust the Lord, right? He's making up his own plans, which are wicked, um, just to save his life by giving up his wife. And yet, it's the Lord who comes to his rescue, right? It's the Lord who intervenes and comes in and it's like, okay, I'll step in here, I'll preserve your life, and I'll give you back your wife, give you all this wealth, and get you to leave the land. Then we get to Genesis 13. So chapter 13, there's a story of Abraham and his nephew, Lot, right? They amass so much wealth and so much cattle that the land that they are living on can no longer support the both of them, right? And they, and they cattle, and all their servants and all that stuff. So they decide to separate, right? Because there's just not enough space. So chapter 13, verse 11 says, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot goes east and Abraham moves to Canaan. So this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And why did Lot pick this direction to go and live? Right? If you read the text carefully, so verse 10 says, 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. So notice how the language that is used to describe Lot's decision is the same language that's used to describe uh, Eve's sin in the garden, right? She saw the fruit and that it was good. Lot sees the Jordan Valley and that it was like the Garden of Eden, right? So he makes a sensual decision. It's all based on his senses. The passage tells us that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he's, he's quite a distance away from it, right? He's not exactly in Sodom. But the next time we see Lot, it's in chapter 14, verse 12. And he's living inside the city. And he's now important in the city. And he's one of the elders, right? So Lot becomes a prominent figure in the city. In a city that's described as being wicked. So if you go to uh, Genesis 14... In chapter 14, Sodom and Gomorrah are attacked by other kings and Lot is taken captive, right? He's kidnapped. So Abraham hears about it and he sends an army of 300 plus men on a rescue mission. So Abraham is, is incredibly wealthy. He's got a lot of money. He has his own private army, right? These are trained men. Um, and they rescue Lot and they bring him back with all his possessions as well. And then we are introduced to this enigmatic character called Melchizedek. Right. So this Melchizedek guy just sort of appears out of, a blue, out of a blue in this narrative. And the next time we hear about him is in the Psalms, right? in the book of the Psalms. And then he disappears, and then he's, he's only mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. So not much is known about him for now. Right? If you want to know about him, stick around until we get to Hebrews. Then you'll know everything. Right? So... Chapter 14, verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap of anything of, that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Right? So there's this man, uh, Melchizedek, who comes out of the blue, and we know nothing about him. And from this passage, right, we see that he's the king of Salem. Right? And what does Salem mean? Does anyone know what Salem means? Sorry? Peace. Means peace. Right. So Salem means peace. Right. So think of um, the Jews. How do, how do Jewish people greet each other? Shalom. Right. It's from this word. Even uh, uh, Muslims, the Arabs, right? What do they say? Salam. Salam. Right. Or from the root word. So he's the king of, of Salem, right? Um, so he's the king of peace. That's what his title is. Does that sound like anyone you know? Yes. Sounds like Christ, right? That is the title given to Christ. Isaiah 11 tells us that, uh, tells us of the coming of the king of peace, right? So his city is called Salem, and do you know what the city later becomes? If anyone can guess, I'll pour them a glass of coke. Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? Jeru means place. So, place of peace, right? <laughs> yes, you can, you can look it up. You can look it up. So, his city is called Salem, right? And, uh, and um, this place later becomes uh, Jerusalem. And so, Melchizedek is a type and a shadow of Christ. Right, so remember we discussed shadows and types? Yes, Ishmael. Sure. Um, so this Melchizedek character is referred to as the priest of the Most High, the priest of God Most High. So, so it means that we had priests before Exodus. Or how, how should you think about that? We had priests before? Exodus and Moses and mm. the law and all that. Yeah. So, so is is what's in the law the continuation of what's is is what what's in the law like you see where the the, 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 the tribe of Levi mm-hmm. set aside to to do the priesthood. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, was it then there before before the law? Like we have priests. So so Christ is called the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, mm-hmm. right? So that's a separate priestly line, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So, again, come, come, when we do the book of Hebrews, <laughs> you'll, you'll find out everything. Yes, Nabi. Um, I have a question on chapter 12, verse 17. Verse 17. Um, is that Pharaoh the same as the Pharaoh in Exodus? I don't think so, no. No, because, um, I mean, they're all called Pharaoh, but it's different Pharaohs. So, this Pharaoh is around during Abraham's time. The Pharaoh in Exodus around Moses' time. Okay. Right, you're thinking of around Moses' time was a different pharaoh. So, I mean, the pharaohs had their own names, but like the pharaoh's a title. So it's like king. Yeah. So they're all kings. Just like there's a president, there's a pharaoh. And I think the way it was, is like the sun becomes the next pharaoh. So you heard of Ramses, the second, the third, they're all pharaohs. So yeah, it goes like that. Okay. So we have this guy, his name is Melchizedek, and he's a type and shadow of Christ, right? He is the king of peace, right? Because he's the king of Salem. And what else is he? He's a priest, right? Like Ishmael was saying just now. Now, in Jewish law, right, and we'll see when we get to Exodus, um, you were not allowed to be a king and a priest. In fact, I think one of the, the kings tried to make himself a priest, and yeah, the, the Lord struck him down, right? Um, so you're not allowed to be that. And yet, that's what Melchizedek is, right? He is a priest and a king, right? So is Christ. Jesus is prophet, king, and priest. Also, Melchizedek, so the name Melk means king. Zedek means righteousness. Right? So he's the king of righteousness so it's a beautiful pointer to christ and what does this king what does this priest do he brings bread and wine right what does that remind us of the lord's supper Supper, right so there's a lot of beautiful imagery that points us to christ so just see the picture here right abraham has been at war and you know he's fighting and obviously tired from all the battle and 
they've won the war, you know, it's over. And here comes a man who brings him bread and wine. And what does Abraham do? Abraham gives him his tithe, right? And gives him his tithe because they, this is a man who is greater than he is. So isn't that what happens for Christians weekly, right? We go out into the world, we war with the enemies of God in the culture, and we had war with our sin, right? And then we come together and uh, on the Lord's Day around bread and wine given by the great high priest, which is Christ, right? Because what does Jesus say? This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is now the covenant uh, in my blood, which is poured out for you, right? So it is him coming and feeding us, strengthening us, and we give to him of our resources, our money and time. We give him the sacrifice of praise, right? So we look more into this Melchizedek character when we get to Hebrews. It's actually quite amazing. So stick around. Um, so we get to chapter 15, and chapters 12, 15, and 17 give us details around the Abrahamic covenant, right? So the covenants that the Lord makes with Abraham. So do you guys know what a covenant? Who knows what a covenant is? It's a promise, right? Um, a lot of people think it's helpful. It's helpful to think of it as a contract, right? Uh, but it's, got, it's way more significant. It's way more weighty and heavier than just a contract. Um, and it's an agreement between two parties. And I think when we get to probably the historical books, we'll discuss the different types of covenants that existed. <clears throat> so we first had a covenant of works. Right? There was a covenant of works where Adam and Eve were told to do certain things and to take charge of all the earth. Right? That if... Abraham ate, sorry, if Adam ate of the fruit, right, what would happen? He would die. He would surely die. Which implied that if he didn't eat, what would happen? Probably live forever, right? So, if you, so the first covenant was of works, right? If you obey me, you will live. If you disobey me, you will die, right? That is a covenant. That is the agreement God has with man. So, question to you guys, if, an unbeliever, if a person is an unbeliever, are they still under the covenant of works? Stay no. Bumi says no. We name names here. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys say? Yeah. 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 You're just saying that because you're saying yes. <laughs> so, I think yes, right? People experience death. Right? People experience the curses of Genesis 3. Why? Because they're covenant breakers. Right? They are rebellious against God. God made them and blessed them with every good gift, and yet they spit in his face and they hate him. Right? So that's a good way to label unbelievers. Just call them covenant breakers. You know, next time you're like, these are the Christians, these are the covenant breakers. It's a good way to think of it. So, yes, right? the covenant of works is still in effect today. Um, even after Christ has come, Right? The covenant of works is still binding. It's just no longer binding for God's people. Right? I think we tend to think of covenants as something you kind of subscribe to. You know? It's like, okay, yes, I believe in God, I believe this, therefore now this applies to me. But you will see, even when you read scripture, that the covenants are applicable to all of humanity. Right? What happened in the garden is applicable to all of humanity. Right? For everyone else, though... Um, so for us believers, there is a covenant of grace. And we see that even in Genesis 3.15, the promising of the seed of the woman, right, which is then expanded in future covenants. So some of the covenants we see 
Oh, so the first one was um, the Damic Covenant. And then we get the Noahic. And then Abraham. Right? And then Moses. It's Moses. It is Moses. So those are the main ones, but you'll see like there's like more, a lot of little covenants that God keeps um, making with his people, right? But as you go down, you'll see that the covenants kind of expand, right? So even if you think about it, um, the, Adam, the, the, the covenant to Adam was, you know, for a small group of people, you know? And then even with the Noah covenant, it's kind of the same as the, the one made to Adam. And then with Abraham, it's only applicable to this family, right? The family of Abraham. And then you get Moses. And then you get to the New Testament and you get the new covenant, right? That's where Christ comes along. And who is this covenant applicable to? It's the whole world, right? Grace is available to everybody. And so you see that the covenants are kind of expanded and they grow as time goes. God kind of reveals more and more of his plan of redemption, right? So... When we say that the old covenant points to the new covenant, that's what we mean. You know, starting here, Genesis 3.15, you know, there will be the seed of the woman. It's promising that there will be a covenant, basically, a new covenant where the whole world is invited to share of it. So what do we see specifically in the Abrahamic covenant? So if you go to verse 4 of chapter 15, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then Abraham asked, Lord, how do I know? How do I know this is going to happen? I'm getting old. My wife is getting old. Uh, neither of us are getting younger. We haven't had any children all of these years. So the Lord tells Abraham to go get an animal and cut it in half. And this leaves Abraham petrified. He's scared, right? Because he knows what's going to happen. God is about to make covenants with him. So this was a traditional covenantal format, right? There would be an animal and then they cut it in half. So what animal should we use? Like chicken. Kill the chicken last week, that's two. So So that's our dead animal, right? Cut it, they put it on the ground, they cut it in half, you know, they cut it into pieces, and then um, you make a covenant, and both parties, so say me and Dumi, we make a covenant, and then you walk in between this animal, right? And so what we're basically saying is, okay, we will stick to this agreement, and if I break it, or if you break it, may what has happened to this animal happen to me. Right? May my, that's, that's what it was. May my flesh be torn apart. May it be completely, you know, desecrated. Let me be ripped apart. And so that's why Abraham is, is afraid. And then he passes out, right? Because um, he knows, like, if I can't keep this covenant that I'm making with the Lord, you know, and I think the fear is I have to keep the commands of the Lord. So you can imagine. 
And so verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the, these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's a strange description of fire and smoke. What does that remind you of? Think the book of Exodus. Fire and smoke. As they walk up through yeah. <laughs> as they're walking out of out of uh, yes. the Yeah, the Israel nation. So when we when we read the Israel Israeli nation being rescued from there, right? What were they accompanied by? By a pillar of clouds, clouds in the day and a pillar of fire during the night, right? I think that's what it says specifically. And um, that was the presence of God, right? The Jewish people call that the legs of God. So who is it that is actually walking through this, these pieces in making this covenant? It's the Lord, right? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, right? Uh, it was dark and behold, a smoking fire and pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Aaron. So remember, Aaron's passed out. So it's the Lord who's walking between this. God is saying, I will fulfill this no matter what, no matter the cost. And we know that it's in the, it's in the cross that God gives his life to fulfill the covenant, right? What happens in the covenant if you break it, right? With this tradition, your flesh will be torn apart, right? What happens to Christ on the cross? His flesh was torn apart, right, for us. So Hebrews 10 verse 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, so remember the phrase blood of Jesus means his, is referring to his physical death, his violent death, right? So by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, right? So it's through Christ's flesh being torn apart, his body being broken, right? That we are able to be reconciled to God. So God keeps the covenant on our behalf. So we get to Genesis chapter uh, Genesis sixteen, and there's Abraham and and Hagar, right? Um, and it's just a mess. Sarah is impatient for God's promise of delivering a child, so she makes her own plan, and has Hagar, a maidservant, bear her children. So God has promised to Abraham and Sarah that. I will do this, you know, I will enable you guys to have a child and they get impatient and they come up with their own solution and we see that the human solution causes problems, causes tension and infighting and eventually Hagar leaves because she despises Sarah who's being abusive to her. But God sends an angel who tells Hagar, listen, turn back and encourages her and, you know, comforts her basically. And so Hagar goes back. And then chapter 17 when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So isn't that strange? In chapters 12 and 15, God said he would do everything, right? And required nothing of Abraham in making the covenant, right? Now he's giving him instructions on what to do. So if we just looked at uh, the covenant made with him in chapters 12 and 15, we would say that it's an unconditional covenant, right? It's like God has got this. You know, there's nothing required of Abraham. It's just being made, all right? But here we kind of see that it is conditional. So he's telling him, walk before me and be blameless, right? That's a condition that I may make my covenant between 
me and you and multiply you greatly. So which is it? Is it a conditional covenant? Is it an unconditional one? And by conditional, I mean that the fulfillment of the covenant is dependent on Abraham, right? So what do you guys think it is? You say Paul will answer the question. Is it the nature? Isn't the nature of the covenant conditional? Because if they are passing there, everyone has to do their part. So if if the other one doesn't do their part, then basically you die. Right? So so it looks like the fulfillment of it depends on both parties, you know, doing their part. Less than the what happened to England would happen to any of the parties who is not keeping the covenant. Okay. To me? Um, to, add, I think to, a, to, to add to that, I would say that yes, it's... Um, but, but I think the thing with this one is that it was the Lord who walked on behalf of himself and Abraham through this when he was making the covenant the first time and they didn't have to do this ritual again. So the covenant still stands that God promises Abram that he will have descendants and that the whole earth, uh, you know, he promises Abram's king. Um, I don't think it's conditional. I, would st- I think it's unconditional, but God says, just wants Abraham to keep his promises and to live a righteous life, but knowing that man is fallen and is sinful, I don't know. I think it's unconditional, but I don't know how to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I hear you, I hear you. Anyone else want to try to back it up? So I think it's both, right? It's both conditional and unconditional, right? And I think all the covenants are. So, you know, we only save by faith through grace, right? And yet the book of James says, faith without works is dead, right? So even in the New Testament, right? Um, so, but by the way, guys, testament just means covenant. So we have Old Testament is Old Covenant, New Testament is New Covenant, right? So even in the new covenant, right, it's conditional. Otherwise, we would just have the Gospels in the New Testament, right, if the new covenant was unconditional, right? Jesus wouldn't be giving commands like, abide in me, otherwise you will be cut off, right? That is a conditional statement. And there are many commands to believers in Christ. So what the above really means is that it's unconditional in the sense that for God's people, he will enable them to fulfill God's conditions right and that is done through the person of christ so we will be changed right we will be made blameless in christ god will bring it about for his people but i like like what do we say you know it's we still have to walk righteously you know we have to walk but the fulfillment of it is done in christ so that makes sense and also the conditional part has to do with god's justice Right? So there are a lot of people, like a lot of Jews uh, in the Old Testament and a lot of Christians in the New Testament, right, who will wake up in hell. That's the reality. Um, in the Old Testament, did being a Jew give you a ticket to heaven? No. Right? And does being a member of your church today give you a ticket to heaven? So Jesus says in Matthew 7, right, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
In verse 22, he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So on what basis can God send these people to hell? It's on the covenant, right? The works-based. It's on the conditional part of it, right? So, and it's interesting. Hear what the people say in this passage, in Matthew 7. Hear what they say when they stand before God, right? What do they say? I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I went to family Bible hour. I went to growth group. I went to school of the Bible, right? I went to the morning and evening services at church. Extra holy, Lord, right? How can you send me to hell? It's not, if, it's not as if these things have no meaning, right? As though they're worthless. You may do all these things. You may perform all the rituals, but they never trusted God, right? These are the people who have never experienced grace. And what do I mean by that? So if you go to Matthew 25, right? Uh, you can turn that, but you don't really have to. I'll read it out. If you go to Matthew 25, uh, you see Jesus talking about the final judgment, right? And the Lord says to the true Christians, those are... Who are on his right. So remember, those who are on his left will be cast away. Those who are on his right are his people. Verse 34, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And how do these people respond? Say, when did we do that? Right? Verse 37 says, And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as strange and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So the believers are like, when did we do all these things? So what I'm highlighting is the difference in attitude between these peoples, right? The false converts in Matthew 7 and the true believers in Matthew 25, right? The true believers know that I'm only here by the grace of God. What did I do for you, Lord? You know, when did I do these things? Right? They're not saying, yeah, I remember that. You know, like I fed and the meal was, you know, um, I gave you the chef's best. I gave you all these things. I clothed you. Um, what are the converts saying? I should get into heaven because I did this for you. Right? I did these great things for you, Lord. I led Bible studies. I performed great signs and miracles. I touched lives, etc., etc. They don't understand the God because they never trusted him for salvation. And so the Lord condemns them on the basis of the conditional aspect of the covenant, right? They're covenant breakers. They've chosen to rely on the covenant of works instead of on the covenant of grace, which is freely offered to all men and women in the person of Christ. Believers know that it's all of grace, right? That it's all the Lord. When did I do anything good for the Lord, right? When did I measure up? I need someone to take away the penalty of my covenant breaking on my behalf, right? So how do you know that you are a true believer? Well, who's your confidence in? Should be Christ, right? So back to Genesis 17, uh, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for, you, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her, sorry, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. That shall be your name. So Sarah gets a name change. She's gone to home affairs. And then Isaac's birth is promised, right? So Isaac means laughter because Abraham laughed, right? Sarah laughed, and then God had the last laugh, 
right? In spite of their unbelief when it came to the promise of having children. In chapters 18 and 19, right, we see the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. So remember the last time we saw Lot, he at first was outside of the city, and now he's inside the city. And God says he will destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. Specifically because they were notorious for the sin of homosexuality, right? And even, I think the old word for homosexuality was sodomy before that, right? That's where we get it from, right? Sodomy, Sodom. So sexual immorality, right? And sexual immorality is really like at its core, it's an attack on the image of God, right? We bear God's image. And you can imagine, uh, I like this illustration that's been used that we are coins, right? So we like coin, give my drawing skills, guys. And you know, a coin can have like an image, like a president or whatever. So imagine that's the image of God, <laughs> right? Because we don't know what God looks like, so we can just fill in the blanks here. Um, so we're a coin, and then we bear his image, right? So the world and what secularism culture tries to do is remove the image of God, right, from the coin, remove it from themselves because we want to be our own God, right? So we try to remove God's work. We want to have our own faces on the coin, but the world cannot remove the image of God from us, right? And so it will resort, it will resort to perversion. The coin is vandalized, it's scraped, it's defaced, it's tarnished. In that same way, pornography, homosexuality, transgenderism, and all other sexual perversions, they distort and attack the image of God, right? Sexual immorality is taking beautiful images of God and defacing them and perverting them from what they were intended for, right? And what sex is intended for. So we need discernment, we need wisdom to discern the times that we are living in as we speak, right? We live in a hypersexual culture. We live in an exceedingly wicked generation. Normal sin prefers darkness to light, right? But sin in high rebellion says that the darkness is light, right? Sin chooses death over life. But sin on steroids says that death is life, right? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's Isaiah 5 verse 20. So sin at its worst is when it calls holiness evil, right? And yet praises the demonic child as if he was the prince of righteousness. So normal sin will get an abortion to avoid the consequences of the sin of fornication. Normal sin covers up and lies, right? This is the kind of sin that hides in the darkness. But sin in high rebellion says that darkness is light, the evil is good. High, high rebellion, right, is sin that will brag about the abortion that they just got. High rebellion sin celebrates perversion and calls it pride, right? Boys are girls, girls are boys, up is down, down is up, triangles have four sides and rectangles have three, right? How can it be wrong when you feel so right? Truth is what I feel and what I feel is the truth. The devil is Jesus and Jesus is the devil. Right? Listen, guys, these are the things of Satan. Right? This is the, these are the kinds of things that are happening in our very culture, in our very society right now as we live in, in 2021. Right? We make Sodom and Gomorrah look 
light in comparison. But God is not mocked and he will bring justice on it. Right? He brings justice on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story is really horrific. Right? Even Lot is willing to give up his daughters to be raped by violent and abusive men in the city. And yet, is he saved? Is Lot saved? He is. Right? So in the New Testament, we find out that he is saved. Right? So God is gracious even when his people do great evil. Right? But the consequences of Lot's actions are still great. And he feels them because he loses his wife. Uh, she becomes a pill of salt. And from his children, we get the bastard tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So if you read more of the Old Testament, you hear of the, the Ammonites, the Moabites. And they come from Lot drunkenly sleeping with his daughters and impregnating them. Right? So this is what happens when you don't walk with the Lord closely. You'll be drawn into the world and into sin. So from here on out, Sodom and Gomorrah is an important theme, right? And even in scripture, it's held up as a standard of terrible sin, you know? Um, forget where it is, but uh, I think it's the nation of Israel where it's they're like, you guys are worse. God says you are worse. You've become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So when you hear that, know that it's bad. But even so, it's important to remember that no sin, no sexual perversion is beyond forgiveness, right? Full and free forgiveness is available in Christ, and because it's the gospel of God, it's the answer to all of our sinning, right? Because we sin in every area of our lives, the gospel applies to every area of our lives, right? We sin in our lusts, in our bodies, in our ambitions. We sin in our recreations. We sin in our economics. We sin in our politics. We sin in our going out and our coming in. Basically, we sin all over the place, right? So we need the gospel for all of our lives. And you and I have good news to proclaim, especially to those who are in high rebellion, right? So may God give us the light and the courage, especially um, to share the gospel truth in a world that hates God, that hates truth, and that hates us as well. So, okay, we need to come up for a break. So Genesis 20, quickly. Um, Abraham does it again, right? Pulls out the... the, the get out of jail card free, which is his wife. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, desires Sarah. And Abraham plays the coward. And now we see that the king is stopped from sinning by God, which is a gracious thing again. So like I said earlier, you know, why does... No, that's not the same point, actually. But you notice that scripture goes to great lengths, right, to go into detail about this account in chapter 20. Um, and show that Abimelech did not sleep with Sarah. So the th reason for that, I think, is because Isaac would have been thought to have been Abimelech's son, right? And even in chapter 21, that's what Ishmael accuses him of. He says he's an illegitimate son, which is serious because Isaac would lose his inheritance. And all of this is important because Isaac is the child of promise. Remember, he's the one through whom the nation will be blessed. So if you read through that chapter, I think you'll notice that it's kind of highlighting that Abimelech did not touch Sarah at all. So we know that it's, uh, it's Abraham's son. We know that God kept his promise. And again, it's God, stop, it's God stepping in to make sure that his promises, um, what he's ordained, comes to pass. So, okay, we're going to break there, guys. Any questions? Yes. Uh, with regard to all the sins which were taking place after Adam and Eve, 
you know, and before uh, Exodus. In Exodus, of course, uh, the children of Israel had the commandments. God was saying, "Thou shalt not, thou shalt not." But between uh, before that, during that period, where they 